The Boys of Tech with Edwin Herman, Brett King and Cameron Colley. everyone welcome along and indeed this is another episode of the boys of tech this time it's episode 118 for monday 30th of may 2011 there are two hosts i'm one of them my name is edwin herman and i'd like to introduce the other one brett king welcome along brett aloha and how is your week brett oh it was very weeky very weeky eh? just uh, another regular week went to a birthday party that was about it Oh, how was the birthday party? It was very good. It's very good. Adult child? It was an adult's birthday party, but it was a kid theme. <laughs> so it was Those stuff are... like all the food was little food and like fairy bread? Fairy bread. There was fairy bread there. Oh, there were past yeah. the parcels and all that sort of stuff, but the the prizes in the parcels were not kid safe. <laughs> right, okay, I'm with you, right. Okay, well, that's, that sounds like a lot of fun. That That's definitely something worth reporting. Now, Brett, we do have a guest joining us. He's returning to the show. It's Asim Mishra. Welcome along, Asim. Good morning. Good morning to you. So for those who may have missed episode 111, Asim, you joined us on that show, and that's when you had your, your drum jeans, didn't you, that, that won you the uh, the title Young Engineer of Great Britain. Yes, yes, I did, yeah. Right, and those are those genes that you kind of have sensors embedded in them and you sort of tap out a, a beat on your on your thighs, as people tend to do anyway. Uh, but with the drum genes, you can plug them into an amp and you can hear what you're, what you're drumming, yeah? Yep. And off the back of that, you were invited to represent the UK at the Intel Science and Engineering Fair in the US, right? Yes, that's right. It was in uh, Los Angeles this year. Ah, right. And so you, you went there, you, you've come back now, and you're going to tell us all about it. So do you want to sort of take us through what it was like and what you did and what you saw and how it went? Yeah, it, it was just such an amazing experience. Um, it, it, it lasted a week, so I flew from Heathrow to LA on Saturday. And then Sunday was kind of all, it, it was like in a huge hall. It was in the Los Angeles Convention Center. And there was like a huge hall with all the projects. And there were 1,600 finalists there. How many? 1,600? Yeah. Each, yeah, each, each, each had their own little like stall, like a, uh, like a curtain in the backdrop and little barriers and a table. And then your display. So Sunday and Monday were pretty much just all setting up. And then there was judging. There's what's called special judging, which is judging by sponsors. So say like Agilent was one of the sponsors and Semantic and there was like a hundred sponsors or whatever. So each one, so that judging happened on Tuesday and then there was the Grand Award judging, which is the actual judging from Intel, this awarding body. And then Thursday was the public day where the public came and saw all the projects. And then Friday was the award ceremony. And it it was just such an amazing experience. You, You can imagine 1,600 people all from different countries. So, and they, they really liked pins for some reason. Everybody was swapping pins. I've got about 50 pins now from all different states and countries. And 
there was an event each night. Uh, someone told me that they spent $30 million last week. On one week, on us. For example, one of the nights, one of the events of one of the nights was Universal Studios. And they'd booked the whole thing. They just closed the whole thing for us. Oh, really? You know, yeah, isn't so it, all it, the rides were free. and Everything oh, in the brilliant. US is done on a big scale, isn't it? Everything's just, yeah. you know, 10 times yes, bigger than anything yeah, else yeah. in the US. Yeah, oh, that's definitely. fantastic. So tell us about the flight itself. Who did, who did you fly? Was it British Airways? Uh, I flew with Virgin Atlantic. Okay, um, Virgin Atlantic. Yeah, are they were they good? Yeah, yeah, it was it was a pretty decent flight actually. I, I've flown with Emirates before and Etihad, where I usually fly to India, the other side. Um, and it it was a pretty decent flight. It was they had like a little TV behind each seat, and it it was twelve hours. It was a very long flight. So was it the first time you flew with Virgin Atlantic? Yes, it was. Yeah. It was the first time I've flown the Virgin Atlantic. Yeah, it was 12 hours. It was really long. It was the longest flight I've been on. And you'd fly again with them? Um, yeah, I think I would, yeah. It, it, it was, it was, the, the food was good. The, the air hostesses were very friendly throughout. And they had little TVs behind each seat. <laughs> and you watched uh, a bunch of movies, did you? Yeah, I, I watched um, Catfish for the first time. Have you, have you watched that or come across that? You'll have to ask Brett there, because I'm not much of a movie buff, but Brett's no, probably... I, I don't even recognise the name. Oh, it's yeah. more of like a... It was kind of like a, a documentary film kind of thing. It, it's it's about this... And it's supposed to be filmed real. So it's about this person who finds someone on Facebook and his brother just starts... Is a, is a filmmaker, an amateur filmmaker. So he just starts videoing their relationship and their correspondence. And huh. it turns out that the person who he meets is totally fake and it's like this old woman for them to be a young girl. Well, that, that's probably not too far from the truth, isn't it? A lot, a lot right. of times. It, it, it's <laughs> really, it was really interesting. And it, apparently some people think it's fake just because the way it is. But it's set out kind of, you know, like really rea- like reality film kind of thing. So according to IMDb, it was released in 2010 and has a rating there at uh, about 7.1. So a reasonably good film, according to IMDb. Mm. And so where did you stay in the US? They, they put you up in a hotel? Yes, they did. I, 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 everything was kind of paid for. It was, uh, the, the flight was, and the, the hotel was Westin Bonaventure, which it was, it, was, it was right in the middle of downtown. Kind of the convention center was just 10 blocks away, about 15, <laughs> nice. 20 minutes walk. And it was right in like the business district with skyscrapers all around and everything. And it, it was a really nice hotel. It was huge. It was really big. It was the first six floors are just restaurants and shops. Oh, really? And things in, in the hotel. <laughs> That's cool. And then, <laughs> and then on top of that, there's another like 35 floors of room you're joking I mean, I was, no I, I was on floor 23 and it was just such an amazing view and on the top is a revolving cocktail lounge did you go oh <laughs> would you would you been allowed to go up there yeah we, we, we i was allowed to go on we weren't allowed to drink obviously it's 21 the age limit in sure america but we had virgin drinks so drinks without alcohol right okay now actually but, th- just on that note can you remind us how old are you because this this is really pertinent to this this whole subject i'm 17 i'll, I'll be 18 in a few weeks fantastic isn't it 
what you've achieved so far. Absolutely fantastic. So go back to the hotel. Uh, you you dined at the restaurants there? Yeah, there were. They, they had like a Chinese restaurant and like a healthy eating restaurant and of course like a burger place and and there's so <laughs> much food in America. I, I had starters like for everything and I was pretty much full all the time. Yeah, look, I, you know, you know what? My, I had a short trip to the US. It's the only time I've been to the US, and I found the same thing. That the, it's all about the the food, isn't it? They, you know, the, and the portions are huge, and and they've yeah. got these. They, they seem to be burger joints everywhere, like you know, in yeah. every corner. It's yeah, you know, we've got a lot of Americans listening to this show. In fact, most of our listeners are Americans, and uh, they're probably sitting there going, well, "It's just." It's just normal, you know. It's just, you know. <laughs> yeah, but for us, you know, for for English people and and uh, New Zealand people, Definitely, we're yeah. not kind of used to that so much, you know. Yeah, and and of course it might sound like a cliche, but there is a Starbucks around every corner. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> they love their Starbucks, Starbucks don't they? Well, there's the a Starbucks in my room. Quarter here too. Yeah, the the coffee in my room was Starbucks coffee. <laughs> is, is that right? Yeah, well, we do. You're right, Brett. We do have uh, quite a few Starbucks here, but, uh, you know, I've heard people from the US also, or people have gone to the US, and, and you have too, Brett, and, and apparently there's, they, they do just have a lot more, don't they? Yeah, it's like Star Mart here. Yeah, I guess it would be, yeah, like that kind of thing, yeah. Wow, so you're in heaven for a week there. Yes, exactly. That's a really good way of putting it, yeah. It was just amazing, and Meeting new people and it was I made some really good friends and it was just such an amazing week. What are some of the countries that people were from at the at the fair that you met? Well, mainly I think about 70-80% of the people there were American because each state would put through 10-15 people. Oh, I see. And then okay. there'd be like four or five people from each country or some countries had a bigger contingent. There were, I think, there's oh, there were 64 different territories slash countries. Oh, wow. So that, I'm guessing that includes states. Right, okay. So if you'd say like 20, 25 states, then there was all kinds of countries. There was Czech Republic, Germany, Australia, New Zealand. There were people from um, New Zealand as well, were there? I, I'm not sure about New Zealand. I'm, I'm sure there were people from Australia. Okay. Um, <laughs> India, Russia, Brazil, Argentina. And you met some of these people? Yeah, yeah, and there was, on on Sunday night, there was a, a student mixer thing and a, a pin exchange where there was just like a big room. There's loads of food everywhere, like buffet style, and just everybody, all the students kind of, the finalists were there, and we all talked, and we were swapping badges. Each person had a badge from their own country, like I had a UK badge. Oh, I see. And you have to bring, you have to bring like 60 of them, because you meet in person, you switch. So oh, here you right. have UK, okay. I love Germany. All right, here you have UK, I love France. <laughs> <laughs> and now I have like 50 badges from everywhere. Oh, very nice. So did you get an opportunity to go out and have a look at LA and look around a little bit? Yeah, we did. Um, on, on one of the days, I think we had a half a day where we went into Hollywood, which was lovely. It was really nice. We saw the, the Walk of Fame with the stars on the floor, oh, which very surprisingly, good. I, I only knew about 10% of the... Probably less than 10% of the names of the flock. Yeah, yeah. It well, goes you, back a long way to the um, the stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. They yeah. don't give them out anywhere near as freely as they used to. Well, I probably only recognise one or two names, I'm, I'm horrified <laughs> to say, but, you know, that's probably the truth of it. <laughs> mm. And aren't the Americans such friendly, polite, welcoming people? You know what? That's something I'd noticed. I'd actually, that's something I picked up on, that 
they're always like from the hotel to the LA convention center. Even though it was only 15, 20 minutes walk, they had like a shuttle, like a big coach every morning. Every 10 minutes, a big coach would come to take you there. Cause, uh, and I know the, the, the coach drivers, they were so nice. They'd say, good morning, how are you? Oh, have a good night. And even people, even people in the lift, they'd say, oh, how are you? How was your day? Oh, I'm tired now. And, and just make polite conversation. You, you just People don't do that in Britain. No, and I think it's to some extent the same here. And, you know, when I, again, going back to my experience when I went to the States, this is some years ago now, you know, five, six years ago. But, you know, I found the same thing, that they were so polite. They they were kind of like almost instantly your friend the moment they you see them for the first time. And they're just yep. so welcoming. It was, it was very nice. What did you think were the, the, the coolest things that you saw at the actual convention? Well, there was so many, as I said, so many 1,600 projects. And there was, there was, you know, like the cutting edge of science that people... The person who won, who rightly won, was doing cancer research. And the person next to me had a water purification system where you just put in dirty water and it cleans it. <laughs> and it's completely portable. It was amazing the things people were doing. Someone had like found, yeah, it was, it was just amazing. It was, people had genuinely done really solid research and come up with new sound, scientific outcomes and to help awesome. the human race. But no one had drum genes. No one had drum jeans. No, I was, I was, I was a really big hit there. I had to change it there. I call them drum pants because they don't understand trousers. Oh, you, he, uh, you were uh, using the term trousers, were you? Yeah, drum trousers. I, I've always used the drum trousers. Right, so they when don't. Said it. Okay, because the stories I've seen, maybe because I've been reading stories in the local media, the I think I've been seeing drum jeans. They seem to write here. So drum mm. trousers. They don't use the word trousers. They you, you, the pants. No, they don't. They don't. They just don't understand it. Um, so, they don't even understand it, I, do they? No, it, no, it doesn't exist in American English. Oh, is that right? I didn't know that. That's another thing. It's surprising how different, even though it's English, how different the languages are. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. I felt like I was. Try, I couldn't understand what they were saying. Yeah, was, I, that I, was I, really <laughs> another point I picked up on. Look, I've had the same, and you know, I've got some American colleagues here. Sometimes they don't understand things I say. I don't understand things they say because they use different words. And in fact, going back to this podcast, you know, I said most of our listeners are American. I'm actually surprised they can understand half the stuff we say. <laughs> Because, you know, we're, we're coming, you know, to your life from New Zealand. We have our own version of English, as you do in the UK. You have the original version of English, I suppose. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, the pro- <laughs> proper English, you know. Uh, and, you know, in America, they use completely different words for things. Here's, here's one example, actually. When you go, uh, when you go in for a, to, to a cafe or something and you order a, a tea or a, or a coffee, actually, because they drink coffee, they don't, they don't drink tea for some reason very much. Uh, you know, they ask if you want cream with it, you know, or cream in it. And cream actually means milk. They're not actually putting cream, they're putting milk. And if they ask you if you want a biscuit with it, a biscuit is actually a scone. Well, what we call a scone. Yeah. Um, yeah and they call biscuits cookies, wrong. you see. They call biscuits cookies. Yeah, <laughs> so, especially in coffee houses and Starbucks and stuff. That's where I didn't re- really know what I was getting. Anymore. Right, so here's you thinking, oh, yes, I'll have a biscuit, thanks, expecting, uh, you know, a biscuit as in like a cookie. They come over with a scone and you're thinking, that's not a biscuit. That's not what I ordered. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's kind of what makes uh, makes life interesting, isn't it, when you're, yeah. when you're yeah. sort of, uh, ex- you know, thrown into a, a different environment. Even though, like you say, even though it's English, it can be the culture and, and 
even the, the language as well as that forms part of that culture can be quite different. Mm. Yeah. It's what makes traveling an adventure. Yes. So how was the award ceremony on, on Friday? Was it sort of done with great glamour and sort of red carpet and all that sort of thing? <laughs> yes, it was. It was It was actually, if you can imagine, there were a lot of prizes there. Because as I said, 1,600 finalists, there, that was all broken up into categories. Like I was in electronic engineering. There was a, a bioengineering, a, a microbes, and all kinds of different categories. So it was, it was a rather long award ceremony. <laughs> and unfortunately, I didn't come away with anything. But, you know, because mine was just a fun, enjoyable project. The people who won, they, they really deserved it because they were doing something, you know, that was for the good of humanity. So they were quite and, serious uh, sort of entries, weren't they? Yes, yes, definitely. Most of the projects are very serious and very important. Not that drum trousers aren't important, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, indeed. You, you know what? If there was a fun category, like the funnest... Uh, injury, I'm sure you would have won that. And, and <laughs> yeah. we have to remember, you know, the fact that you actually got to represent the UK there, I think is a fantastic achievement. And I'm mm. sure you're very proud of that anyway, even if you didn't come away with an Thank award. You. No, not a solid. What an experience. Oh, I think that's... Now, who, who went over with you? Was it just you or did your family go as well? Oh. Um, a person from Young Engineers, which is the organ, the great organisation that kind of runs the Big Bang and the lo- the... National British Fair, um, right? Okay. Who, uh, representatives from them came with me, and another, and another girl who had won as well. Right. So you didn't have any family there with you. No. Right. Do they? <laughs> do they want that to go? Been fun. Uh, they, they probably. Yeah, I think they would have wanted to go. <laughs> they probably would have had to pay their own way, of course. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Now you live in Hull, which is for those people who aren't familiar with the uh, British geography, is way up north of England. Correct? Yes, it's where the Humber Bridge is. The Humber Bridge? I'm going to have to Google that. <laughs> how, do you, how do you spell that? Humber, H-U-M-B-E-R. It was, the, it was the longest suspension bridge in the world for a while. Oh, you'll have to excuse my ignorance. I'm, I'm very sorry. The Made Humber Bridge. British Steel. Wow. There you go. I'm looking at it right now on, on Google, Google Images. So it was the longest suspension bridge, was it? I, I think it's suspension bridge. It was the longest bridge in the world for some at some point. Wow, that is some cool bridge. I'm just <laughs> looking at it now. Mm. That's fantastic. You know, Hull, the, the thing that I always remember of Hull, and I can't remember if I said this on episode 111, and forgive me if I have already said this, it's the episode of Only Fools and Horses, and it's called, the episode is called To Hull and Back. <laughs> mm. I don't know if you, do you know the series? You might be a bit young for the, you know. I, I, I've watched a few episodes, yeah. Okay, right, yeah, yep. Yeah. So they end up, I think uh, Rodney ends up in Hull and uh, Del Boy has to go after him or something like that. I, yeah. I don't really remember. I've got it on DVD still, but yeah, it's been a while since I've watched it. <laughs> so you live in Hull. How did you, you made your way down to London, Hull? There's a direct train from Hull, so two and a half hours. Two and a half hours. That's not too bad. Yeah. Mm. No, it's not at all. I was really surprised, actually. I was left home at, I think, seven. The train left the station at seven. So I was in... King's Cross, uh, London, by half nine, and then I was on the underground, and in an hour I was sitting at the terminal. So in three hours, dot, I was from my house in, in uh, sitting in front of the check-in desk. Oh, now, now that's fantastic, but wouldn't that irk you, the fact that you've got to wait another two hours to board an international flight these days? Yes, yes. <laughs> Isn't that <laughs> such a frustrating thing? Let me tell you a little story about Heathrow. When I came back from Europe, we, we flew out of Heathrow, 
And we arrived there reasonably early. That was actually not long after the, the London bombings. And because of all the new security, we thought we'd be there extra early. And we were something like three and a half hours early. Just to, you know, we wanted to be make sure, yeah. wanted to make sure we didn't miss our flight. And that morning I hadn't had a chance to use the shower at the, we were staying with relatives and they kind of ran out of hot water and I didn't get a chance to have a shower. So I was kind of feeling not, not very fresh and, you know, I wanted to freshen up a little bit. So I thought I'd seek out some showers. Well, you know, once we'd checked in and all that, and we were sort of sitting there waiting as you do. I went up and down and I couldn't really see them. It took me a while to find them. Eventually I found one and it was closed. I don't know why I didn't say. And then uh, I went further down to the other end of the terminal and I found another set of showers that were out of service. So I thought, oh, well, that's just typical, isn't it? You know, that one time you you really want to have a shower at the airport, you can't find any showers that work or that are open. <laughs> so I go and find an airport person and I ask them about, you know, are there any more showers? Uh, you know, and they said not at this terminal. But what you can do is you can go to another terminal and there are some showers there. So I thought, well, that sounds like a great idea. Where do I go? And they showed me where to go. Now, in the meantime, my wife was sitting down in the sort of waiting area where you wait after you've checked in. She had all the passports and all the bags and so on. Now, the one thing I haven't told you yet is that I actually have two passports. I have a a Swiss passport and I have a New Zealand passport. Now, my wife had all the passports we were using at the time, which were the New Zealand ones, but I had on me my Swiss passport. Now, here's where this got me into a bit of trouble. I followed the directions that the airport staff member gave me, and then eventually I got to this kind of checkpoint. I thought, this is a bit odd. So it's when you exit a a terminal, you have to kind of check through, yeah. And they said, passport, sir. And I almost sort of said, oh, I haven't got it. And I realized, oh, I do have my Swiss one. So I pulled that out and I showed them. They said, that's fine, carry on. So I walked on through. Anyway, eventually I found this other terminal. The showers were <laughs> were all occupied and I waited and I waited and people must have been having very long showers because I waited there for what seemed like quite a while. And by this stage, time was ticking on and I thought, look, I'm going to have to go back. I'm actually going to be worried that I'm not going to make it back to the terminal in time for my flight. So I thought after all that effort, I I gave up and I went to go back to the terminal I came from. And that's when the trouble started because they said, uh, when I tried to get back into the area where my wife was, they said, your boarding pass, sir. And that's when I said, oh, no, Uh, my wife has that and she's through there. And they, the, the, the only thing they said was, oh, you have a problem. And I'm like, I know I have a problem, but. You're going to help me fix it? That's all they said. You have a problem. So I said, okay, what do I need to do? And they said, uh, go and talk to this person. And they point to a desk. So I go to the British Airways desk because we're flying British Airways. So I go to the British Airways desk and I wait for the lady. She was kind of having a, a little chat with her friend. And eventually she came free and I told her the story. And she said exactly the same thing. Oh, you have a problem. So anyway, but <laughs> they could have just go and get your wife. Well, I, I know I was kind of brainstorming there. I was thinking maybe I should get them to page her, or can they just go and get her if I describe her, and they could find her and bring her out or something. <laughs> and uh, they said, "Look, what you need to do is go over there and see if they can reissue you with a, another boarding pass." So I go over to where she showed me, and I told them the same story. Oh, you have a problem? Yes, I know I've got a problem. I don't know why they keep saying that. <laughs> you have a problem? I know I've got a problem. Because it's your problem, it's not theirs. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, exactly. So they said, okay, we we can only print you a boarding pass if you've got a form of ID. And I'm thinking, oh, thank goodness for my Swiss passport. So I showed them my Swiss passport, and then she sort of did a double take. Then she said, but you're not 
listed under this passport. What? What are? You, where are you going? Who are you? Where are you? Go, where are you going to? What, what's your <laughs> business? Your <laughs> they, I think they thought it must have been some sort of terrorist or something, or some I don't know, some dodgy person. So eventually, I told her the story. My wife's through there. We've, I've got two passports. I, I'm I'm a Swiss citizen. I'm also a New Zealand citizen. I've got two passports. My wife's got the ones we're travelling on. I happen to have my Swiss passport. And she said, "Well, how'd you get out of the terminal?" I said, "That's what I showed my Swiss passport." And she said, "Oh, well, that was your mistake." So in the end, they issued me a new pass, my new boarding pass, and I went through. And about twenty minutes later, we boarded. <laughs> so that's my that's my uh, last memories of Heathrow. So the travel advice from your story is never shower when you're at an airport and never use two different passports while you're in an airport. Correct. So if you have to, travel smelly. Yes. <laughs> uh, see, I take it your uh, you know, transition through Heathrow was a lot smoother. Yeah, it was. I, I was, I mean, I, I thought it was fine. I, I enjoyed the terminal and... I think it, it, Heathrow is just so big. If even something little goes wrong, then it can, you know, it can cause a, affect everything else. And yeah, and they got five. We, we've all heard of the huge problems that happen there. Oh yes, so. absolutely. And there's five terminals, and they're kind of far apart from each other, aren't they? Yeah, it's, it's huge. It's a huge effort. So, Asim, congratulations once again for representing the UK at the Intel Science and Engineering Fair. Thank you, Edwin. You're welcome. And you're happy to stay for the rest of the show? Yes, of course. Brilliant. Excellent. I was hoping you'd say yes. All right. Now, last week we did talk about uh, Lodsys, was it, Brett, I think? The, yes, the, it was. That's right, the patent company. What they were doing is sending kind of, I guess, legal threats, really, wasn't it? Threats of lawsuits mm-hmm. to iPhone developers saying that we noticed that you've used the in-app payment system, Apple's you know, in-app payment system and that breaches our patents and therefore unless you want a lawsuit you need to give us some money now now the the news this week is that they're actually also now targeting android developers at least one android developer has received a similar letter Mm. so i'm not quite sure where this is all going the other thing i noticed by the way brett i don't know if you noticed this was that apple has actually responded earlier in the week by sending yeah, okay, right. They sent Lodsys a, a letter saying that Apple's own license with them should actually cover developers and their applications. So, Oh, but they didn't say should. They said did. Well, okay, they said did. Yep. Yes, Apple are, are <laughs> adamant. quite adamant yeah. that their license for use of that technology is passed on to their own developers and the third-party developers that use their service. Well, so. while we're on the, we're sort of talking about American things. That is what, actually one thing as well, isn't it? They they love their lawsuits over there. You didn't get yes. sued, it seemed, did you, for anything, or threatened to be sued for anything? No, <laughs> no I didn't. No, okay, no. <laughs> all right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Count right. yourself lucky. <laughs> yeah, they, they certainly do like their lawsuits. Uh, just a cultural difference there that, that I, I guess you and I are. Are not so, uh, or us all are not so used to. Now, here's another thing that I noticed a story that's, I think, a little concerning. Apparently, a lot of dentists and doctors now in the US, when you sign up, when you go in for an appointment, you need to sign a, you know, a, a, a sheet. And part of that is agreeing that any comments that you make, including reviews of that doctor or dentist's practice, whether it's on the net or otherwise, those comments belong to that practice. <laughs> so in other words, if I go and say, don't go and see Dr. So-and-so, I had a terrible experience, he doesn't seem to know what he's talking about, well, they own that comment, which means 
they can obliterate it if they want, quite legally. Mm. But it's, it, no, no, they can't because you can't sign over consent for that sort of thing. Can't no, you? no jury would ever uphold that sort of complaint using that. Nobody would ever uphold that you'd signed away all of the content of any review or comment that you happen to make about somebody. It's not something that you can copyright. It's not something that you can hand away. Don't you think? Yeah. And I'm not the only one who thinks that. Lawyers and for copyright industry and freedom of speech lawyers in America also think that these are agreements that have no teeth. They're basically just bullying tactics, saying, you know, threatening people that this will happen even though there's no way that it actually could to try and censor people's comments, people's reviews. Well, the reason they say that doing it is because they want to stop fraudulent comments, you know, from, you know, people saying fraudulent things negatively, obviously. But how does this sort of thing stop uh, fraudulent entries, fraudulent reviews? Because the people making those fraudulent reviews are not going to have signed the confidentiality agreement, are they? Exactly. And therein lies <laughs> the problem, isn't it? So I don't think it's actually about that at all, because you're, 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 you're exactly right, Brad. The people doing fraudulent comments obviously aren't customers, so they have never signed that agreement, so yeah. they can't be bound to it. Precisely. So that cannot be the reason that they're doing it. What it is, is to censor the comments of actual patients. Yeah, that's right. And it's, not to, it's not to stop, you know, non-patient or competitors' comments pretending to be patients. It's to censor the reviews and opinions of the actual patients. It's the only reason it would be there. And the company that has been selling these agreements to doctors and dentists to use has been taking a case for their non-disclosure or copyrights handing over agreements several times before. And they've kept changing the wording of their documents and kept changing the wording that they use to portray their documents because every time they've changed it, it's come back to bite them. Well, you know what? Even if they're not legally sound, the fact that a practice is trying to do that, I, that would just, I would walk out the door. I'd say, no, go away. Yeah, I would, I would say never... practices that actually employ this technique, uh, employ this sort of document, are shooting themselves in the foot. Exactly. Well, you've got to wonder about their, their quality. If, if they're worried about people saying bad things about them, what does that say about them? Precisely. Because can you believe, if they've got this sort of document that you need to sign, can you actually truthfully believe the reviews that might exist for that particular doctor or dentist? You've got to think that they might be suspect if the you know, the practitioner themselves is employing this sort of system to try and exert control over people's reviews of them. How can you trust that the reviews are actually real? And that's what most people who actually seek reviews are quite savvy in that um, regard. They will look at the reviews and if it is all absolutely glowing, then people start to think there's something suspect about that because there's no business, whether it be a service business or a product or anything like that, that gets 100% glowing reviews. Everybody's got a negative comment about something. Everybody's going to have had one bad experience with it. And it's those sorts of things that people look for. They temper a review site. So a, a negative review amongst mostly positive reviews is actually a good thing. It's shows that that review system is probably more robust, more reliable, so you can believe what that ranking is. 
I would be seriously shocked if I saw, if I was asked to sign that at a doctor's practice or at a dentist clinic. Oh, I, I would not sign it at all. What about you, Asim? Have you, what would you do if you were asked to sign that? Would, would that bother you or are you with us on um, this? I think, no, I think I'm with you. It would definitely bother me. I, I don't think I'd sign it either. Because you'd, like, you'd wonder it, why they're doing it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. You, why do you need to censor? Why do you need to stop me saying what I need to say? Yeah, that's... Precisely. Exactly. And fortunately in this, our system here, we could probably take them to case for it and say, no, I'm not going to sign it, but you're still going to provide me with service. Well, that would be an (laughs) interesting angle, Brad. I I hadn't thought of that. Uh, that, Well, I know taxis taxis can't refuse service, but can doctors? I don't know. Depending on the circumstance, how could they refuse service? Is it regulated like taxis? I'm not sure. Maybe they are, as you say, and and they're not allowed to. That would be yeah. an interesting one here. Well, maybe that's why we'll never see this here. Who knows? You know, imagine turning up to a doctor's surgery because of an emergency situation. Uh, maybe your regular doctor's there or maybe it's a doctor's surgery that's a lot closer for the emergency situation. They have to render support. They can't make you sign that stuff. So, obviously in America, they wouldn't be able to do that sort of thing. And it's quite different, obviously, for dentists because there's... I can't think of very many life-threatening dental <laughs> No, it doesn't seem to be. No, it's usually medical. I'm sure there's something out there, but I, I right now can't think of anything. <laughs> but for doctors, at least, you, you, you would, there'd be so many ways to bypass that. Yeah. And I'm sure you could take them to case for it. It's like, I do not want to sign that. You are the, you are the dentist that provides this particular service that I want but I'm not going to sign this particular thing. Yeah, just to put this in perspective, it, it is a small minority of, of practices in the US. It's just confined to a few. It's not something that's widespread, but it is interesting to track this because it's not something that, well, at least that I think, well, I think it'd be a bit worrying if it was something to, that became widespread. So, I, Yeah, I think it's ridiculous. Yeah. They're shooting themselves in the foot. Yeah. And the, the best way to get them to stop this practice is to not, yeah, is to either challenge them for it or to not go to them. Now, I want to talk about Skype because last week we reported that Skype was sold to Microsoft. And I said, oh, the service is going to degrade the moment it goes to Microsoft. And what do we see? <laughs> we, <laughs> you're laughing at Steam, aren't you? We see, okay, I am trolling a little bit. But what do we you see? You are definitely we, <laughs> trolling, Ed. <laughs> we do see they've had a, an outage. It affected people that uh, people could not sign on. Existing mm-hmm. people uh, connections were remained. But new, you know, new connections couldn't be made because people couldn't sign on. Yep. And all this now, because it's, you know, gone on to Microsoft. Is, is that kind of how it's going to be? Nope. I do not. I think you're trolling here, Ed. Trolling majorly. Because the recent outage was fixed really quickly. They were onto it like, you know, snap of the fingers. Whereas last year, in December, they had an outage which lasted for several days. I think you're right on there, Brett. The reason they probably did it so fast this time is, of course, they want to impress the buyers. Mm. This is a coincidence. The fact that they've had this outage really, and I, I know it's nothing to do with the fact that it's Microsoft owned, but, you know, it looks bad and I, I guess they, they want to do their best for, for Microsoft, uh, mm. you know, for the, for the new owners or owners-to-be. Precisely. But once again, it's something, it's a service which runs on the internet. And as we know about the internet, it's never there all the time. Everything is vulnerable. Stuff goes down constantly. And it's the response to the outage, the response to the fix. That is what's 
um, determines whether or not it is a, a valuable first rate sort of service or whether or not it's a fly in the night sort of thing. And they were pretty onto it to fix this one. They were. You can't fault them for that. That's true. On to France. Now, France is wanting to introduce an amendment to an existing law, the 1981 Lang Law, so that under the change, publishers will be allowed to dictate the price of books they sell, and this time covering ebooks. So, for example, through Amazon or through iTunes, if it's a French publisher, they will, under this law or the amendment to this law, will be able to set the price. Now, that's very different to the current system because right now there's nothing to stop Amazon setting their price. There's nothing to stop iTunes setting their price. Yeah, there's nothing to stop them setting the price for the product and there's nothing to stop them setting how much discount they want to give on the product. Whereas under the Lang Law, there's like a maximum amount of a 5% difference for a discount. That's right. And the person who sets the discount or the place that sets the discount is the publisher themselves, not the distributor. So under the amendment to the law, what's already been happening with physical publications, physical books, will be brought into the, the digital realm. So Amazon will no longer be able to sell French published books electronically for less or more than the price that the publisher sets. So it's a drastic change. And it's, yeah, it's quite interesting because the, the rewrite, the, this amendment is also trying to put that sort of thing on Amazon and other distributors that are outside of France. Yeah, now it's that's like the interesting the part, The French created the, the, you know, it's a French published electronic book, but the distributors are outside, but this Lang Law Amendment is trying to make these international companies toe the line of the, the, the French law for this. And it quite flies in the face of a lot of the stuff that the EU is trying to do. So it'll be interesting whether or not it passes by EU's oversight for this sort of thing. Yeah, I, I, I don't know quite how they're going to get that law to to apply to offshore distributors like Amazon. I, I, mm. I don't quite see how that's going to work. Yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But in, in itself, what do you think about the law itself, Brett and, and Asim? What do you guys think? Surely, I, I don't understand it because whatever Amazon sells it for, they're still going to pay the same price to the French, to the, uh, the person who writes the book, the publisher. So what's it to the publisher if Amazon even buys them all and then gives them away for free? Yeah, well, that's a good point, isn't it? It is a very odd law. the The law has is part of you know how the, the French culture is very protective of its language and protective of its culture, and that was what the language law was introduced to try and contain. It was setting a a median price. So that every distributor of the books in France would be on an even playing field. So the, the little the little shops would be able to compete with the, the hypermarts and that sort of thing in selling the books. And the more consistent price of the books would come in and some of that would be used to enhance the you know, the retention and development of French culture, French language. So that's with the original intention of it. It kind of evens the playing field for the different competitors in that field. But it does mean that nobody can get a competitive advantage, which would be completely anti the full-on free market economy sort of system that the Americans love. So it will be very interesting how the American companies take issue with this law now affecting the, the e-books coming out of France. But as it seems said, if, if they're actually selling it or giving it away, so selling it for less or giving it away, 
as long as the the publisher gets the same mm. cut, why would it matter? I That's don't the bit, know. Yeah, it's it's bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, but you know what? They apparently this law. Now I was talking to to someone who was involved in the book industry. Actually, before I knew about the story, I wish I had actually uh, talked to them about this particular story. But they, he told me that some years ago, and it was abolished. I think was it in the nineties or eighties mm-hmm. that they used to have this sort of almost worldwide, and in, in, in most Western countries anyway, where the the price that's set is the price you that the distributor has to pay, and and it's only with the abolishment of that 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 Amazon was able to to do all sorts of sort of fancy pricing algorithms. Mm. But it, it was a, a reasonably widespread practice, not just in France. Uh, but of course now with the like, you know, with the online age, this is where it gets all very interesting and the fact that France are trying to impose this on publishers outside of the country. And that's, I don't know where that's, how that's going to stand up. Another interesting law, a scene this one might interest you because you are British. The UK is going to, well, the UK was going to have to introduce... Uh, a law on cookies. Now we're not talking biscuits here. <laughs> we're talking, <laughs> we're talking uh, browser cookies, right? Uh, to to come in line with the with the EU's directives. Now this law was going to be such that when you visit a website, you have to give customers the opportunity to uh, accept cookies. You have to say, look, can I send you cookies, and are you willing to accept them? And they have to be able to to answer the question, say yes, that's fine, carry on, or no, I want to leave the site. Mm-hmm. Now the the news here is that the the cookie law was going to have to come into effect was I think this week the week just been uh, they've been given a one year extension on that now okay that's all very all well and good but what are your thoughts on the law itself again a similar question to the to the French book pricing law what do you think about this cookie law the fact that you have to offer your customers the ability to first say yes that's okay with me before proceeding to to give them cookies I think in idea. In in theory, I can see what they're doing with it. However, in practice, it would be such a pain for every new website I go on to say yes, accept, accept, accept. Exactly. Um, so, so why do you think they're doing? Me. So why do you think they're doing um, that? What would be the? Uh, um, I don't know. If if you really are against cookies and you can disable them, you'd be that you. I mean, you. I'm sure accepts all cookies. You you can disable cookies in Internet Explorer and. Hmm. Pretty much all the browsers, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think it it the the purpose behind the law has the has well, it's got the right idea. It is to protect people's privacy, it's to protect to prevent third party websites and things that insert advertising and stuff on people's web pages from storing cookies to track you. And a blanket accept all sort of thing just doesn't really get it in the face of the people, the vast majority of internet users who aren't really technology savvy. They don't know what a cookie is or what a cookie is tracking, that sort of stuff. But yeah, I think you're quite right. Having it be enforced by the web pages themselves, putting in your face constantly little boxes saying you want to accept cookies. Um, If you don't, then you can't use the web page or whatever, is going to get really, really annoying. And it should be focusing on developing a sort of standard in the browser market for having the browsers control the level of cookie acceptance, but really kind of highlighting that to their users of the browser as to what it is that they're doing when they set that up. That's what they should be focusing on instead of trying to make every website say, you know, do you want to accept my cookie? 
Now, I did a little bit of research into this, nothing too deep, but it seems to me that the main objective here are about its third-party cookies because yeah. there, is an actual, there, there is an exception in this, in this rule, if you like, about having to have your customer accept, and that is the exception is if the cookie is designed simply to maintain the state of the, uh, the session, if you like. So yeah. if it's a, a cookie that goes back to the this, this server, it's issued by one server and goes back to one server or domain, if you like, uh, then that's that's usually fine. I don't think there's a problem with that. Mm. So I think it's mostly third-party cookies. Tracking one, cookies. Tracking cookies, but that's not the only thing as well because I think Google advertising falls under that as well. Mm. Because uh, although they're not deliberately tracking you, that well, they kind of are. Well, but, they kind of are. Well, they, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's they are. It's their but, embedded <laughs> advertising cookie that you've gone to a web page that is not their web page, but they've got a cookie embedded in that other web page. Yeah, okay, so they're, they're tracking you, but them know. So, yeah. what I was meaning was that that's not the, the sole purpose of it. It's all, yeah, yeah. You know, it's to it's to serve ads, but as part of that, yes, they track you so they can better target your ad, their ads. Uh, mm. But, you know, that falls foul of that, and that's where where people are getting caught up, especially when they've got, you know, uh, Google AdSense, so they've got ads embedded on their site. Yeah. Uh, but that's, not, of course, not the only ones, but I, I think... I guess what I'm getting at is apart from Google Ads, I kind of would have thought that most websites wouldn't fall foul of this because uh, session cookies are totally fine. Yeah, well, as long as it is session cookies and not cookies that uh, are there for constant tracking. Correct. Um, yeah. Correct, but I don't know that but many sites do, yeah, do that. It'll be a lot of, well, there's more than just Google AdSense. No, <laughs> but it's, I picked on that because it's the biggest. It'll be, yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll yeah. be, any, most any of it will be those advertisers, those yes. different adverts and, yeah, being put into pages. Now, I assume you don't own a website, do you? No, I don't know. Okay, because if you did, I was going to say you might have to figure out these new rules. You've got a year to do so. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you don't have to worry about that, so that's fine. Because that's a UK-specific thing. All right, and speaking of morals, this is all about new laws and stuff, this this whole show pretty much. It's kind of like the law show, <laughs> almost. Uh, the US wants to introduce, this time that we've done France, we've done the UK, now it's back to the US. The US wants to introduce a new rule, and I actually like this one, that re- requires black boxes in cars. Now, just for those mm. of you who don't know the jargon, the black box is kind of like the one in the plane, the one that records activity prior to, well, usually examined, you know, once there's been a crash or an event. You can mm. examine what happened prior to that. Yep. What do you guys think? I'll, I'll leave it over to you guys. No, I think this is good. Not only if they can access the black box, even when you don't have a crash, they can see your driving habits. Mm. And for in, I'm talking about insurance premiums here. Yeah. I'm, I'm 17, and I say if I, I've, I'm just having driving lessons and stuff now, but it, I, I drive, say I drive perfectly fine and not speed or anything. Then why should I have to pay the same as my seventeen-year-old friend who's an absolute maniac in his car? Right. Mm. So, so you're saying it'd be fairer. It'd be fairer insurance-wise. Is that what you're yeah. saying? Yeah. Yeah. If they can, if they can track, see, see how you see how you drive, then you know it's all insurance is is so much for our age, and mm. we can be safer than you know someone older who hasn't passed their driving test like ten years ago or something or whatever. Do you have but, your own? Um, do you have your own car? Um, not yet. No, I did have a motorbike, but I got hit by a car. Oh dear! I got written off. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I take it you're uh, okay. I mean, you're obviously yes, yes. Right. No. Yeah, I, I got I got away with it. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who was it? Can I ask? Who was it? Do you want, I don't know if you want to add to this publicly, but who was at fault? It was it was it was the other guy. I was just going straight on the main road, 
and he came out off left and just went straight in front of me, straight right. into me. Oh man! It, it was it was entirely his fault. I I was uh, minding my own business, and uh, but uh, yeah, if I got a car, it, I mean it's at least two thousand pounds insurance for seventeen year olds. Well, I was going to mm. ask you, but that's why I asked you whether you had, had a car. But uh, I was going to ask you about the the cost of insurance. So, uh, how much did you say the insurance is? It's at least you know my friends are paying two thousand. Three thousand pounds more per, than per their year. cars per year. Yeah, that's yeah. insane. More, more than their cars. I knew it was but, high in the UK. I didn't realize it was that high. No, they're no, paying just more than the cars. They're paying more than the car is worth. Yeah, yeah, for seventeen-year-olds. Okay, just, sure, just right, right, because that's that would be the highest because they, they've got the highest accident ratings. Yeah, because because you guys are all boy racers, right? <laughs> exactly. We're not all boy racers, and, <laughs> and, and that's your hot, point, isn't it? They'll be able. With the black box, the insurance companies will be able to see who are and who who is and who isn't. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. that's only if they tie personally identifiable information to it, because it ju- could just be that it's it's on your car, but it's your mum who always drives it. <laughs> so she she drives it fine, and the insurance companies then look at it and go, "Oh, it drives fine. We'll we'll lower the the insurance premiums for it." I think it's a good idea, depending on how it is that it's implemented or the the requirements for accessing it. Because there could be, there's a whole heap of privacy issues that could come up with a device which constantly tracks basically everything you do in a car, uh, the way that you use it. If it's only used for accessing in those times where there is an event, like an accident to prove who's culpable or, you know, serious injury, that sort of thing, then it's doing exactly what the as you said, the black boxes in aircraft are doing. It's used for crash investigation. It's used to determine what went wrong. Was it something wrong with the vehicle that needs to be fixed and that can be passed on to manufacturers to make safer vehicles and that? Or was it the person who was at fault? Or was it, you know, an outside influence? Used in those situations, it could be a brilliant thing. It could be a lifesaver. But it does have uh, a lot of privacy implications. And a lot of people are also on the opposite side of the whole insurance premium thing. They're not wanting insurance companies to be able to randomly access this sort of black box information. So you're talking about the boy races themselves. (laughs) They they wouldn't want that. Yeah. Because it would be their disadvantage, wouldn't it? Oh, well, and also mum and dad who might have a boy racer in the family and they borrowed the family car. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah, okay. Like you say, it all comes down to how they're going to tie it to a person and are they and, and all that. And uh, yeah, because if it's tied directly to a person, then it becomes a really big privacy issue. Because as we talk about when we're talking about internet tracking and personally identifiable information being sent by your cell phone and those sorts of things, those have major privacy implications. But if it's just the anonymous data that comes from the crash recordings, then it's got potential to save lives. Oh, you're right. There's a lot of stuff we can learn from that. For example, you know, how much does speed contribute to crashes? How much does... Did they not use their indicator? They just, and were they on the were they on a phone? That sort of that's thing. That's right. Now, by the that's, way, just while we're mentioning this, indicators—you know, the, the little orange light that indicates when you're turning—in America, they call that a turning signal. I think. What yeah. do you call that in the UK? You seem. Indicator. Are you okay? You also have a normal language there. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) You also speak English. That is that is excellent. (laughs) Oh, we're just being a little nasty there to our American listeners. Uh, I'm sure they can take it. We we love them for you know they 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 make up the bulk of the listeners listeners. So I'm sure they're fine with it. Look, uh, that's pretty much it for the international stories. Anyway, that's all I wanted to cover. Uh, Brett, was there something you wanted to throw in the mix there? Oh, yeah. I recently saw a um, a new camera has been announced by a company called Hasselblad. 
and they make cameras that are used for doing things like photo shoots, landscapes, uh, jewelry, and you know, fashion shoots for those sorts of things. Where you know they take absolutely stunning photographs for advertising and for billboards and that sort of stuff. And they've just come out with a new top-end model called the H4D 200MS. And that 200 stands for 200 megapixels. What? 200? Is it really 200 or is it some software well, that takes it out? Well, it's not, the well, CCD it's not really sure. 200. It's not really 200. The, the megapixel sensor is only 50 megapixels. Well, that's still a lot. 50, yes. 50 megapixels. <laughs> the, the sensor is 50 megapixels and it uses them. a technology that Hasselblad developed called multi-shot. But it's not just taking a bunch of photos and stitching them together. You mount the camera and you focus it on what you want to take a photo of. And there's actually a tiny piezoelectric motor inside the camera that moves the sensor and takes the photos. So the camera yeah. itself stays solid. Oh, I see. So it moves them half a pixel? Just, is that what you're saying? Yeah, like half a oh, pixel. Oh, okay. Each way that doubles... Pumps. Right, that doubles your X and Y, therefore quadruples your number of pixels. Oh, exactly. And suddenly oh, okay. you've got a two megapixel clarity image oh, of wow. whatever thing that is that you're taking a photo of. And it's $45,000, though. Yes, what? it's $45,000. It's, it's, it's really cheap. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, 32,000 euros. That's a huge amount. We're talking a still camera here, here right? Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's a still camera. It's, it's, <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> if you took a close-up of someone's face, I mean, their nose hair would be about like 12 pixels wide. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> what a thought. All right, Brett, that's a, that's, I'm glad you mentioned that. Thanks for that. That concludes the international section, but don't go away because right after this little musical ditty, we'll come back with a New Zealand story to talk about. Don't go away. All right, welcome back. Now, Asim, I'm not sure how, how much this is going to apply to you, but have a listen anyway and see if you've got an opinion on this. Here in New Zealand, later this year, we're about to go to uh, another election. It's election year. And uh, in case New Zealanders hadn't noticed, hello, this is uh, come November, I think, we're going to mm-hmm. the polls. And this year, they're being very careful, noting that on election day, you see, we've got this rule that says you're not allowed to campaign so in other words, you're not allowed to say vote for Labour, vote for National or whatever your party's called yep. on election day. It's illegal to do that. It's illegal to influence and in any way the, the vote of somebody else. Correct, on election day. Mm-hmm. Up until before that, you can, and that's the whole idea of it, right? Yep. But on election day, it's a, a, sort of a, a sort of a fair day, if you like. That's, exactly. That's it's the, the idea. It's the day where you get to mull over your own decision yourself without an outside influence. Exactly. And so this year, they're going to pay particular attention to Twitter users and people who say things like, you should vote Labour or you should vote National or don't vote for this crowd, on election day, could be fined up to $20,000. And they're going to mm. be actively monitoring it. Going to be actively monitoring Twitter, actively monitoring blogs, actively monitoring the, the web pages of the different parties. And yeah, just the, the, the sort of social media web space. But to- they didn't say podcasts, though. Ah, yes. <laughs> but I think that would. <laughs> yeah, I think that would no, also would come under it. <laughs> but yeah, if you if you do, so you've got to be aware that your idle comment of "Oh, I just voted for blah, go blah," after you've just been to the the polling booths is going to potentially cost you twenty grand. So yeah, keep your election opinions to yourself until the day after and then you can go all out for now, of course this law only the flags. well this law only applies to New Zealanders so what we could do is we could get a seam 
to say vote whatever party and we can publish that on our podcast and would we be okay? Well, we couldn't publish it on our podcast because our podcast is oh, true. a New okay. Zealand podcast. So how about a seam? I'll tell you who to, who you should say vote for on election day. You can do that from the UK and we'll be sweet. <laughs> like a, like a fine. Uh, yeah. No, you can't because you, you're not a New Zealand citizen. They can't touch you. <laughs> I can see already but you're not they, really wanting to test it. they track you back to this podcast and Edwin, who is a New Zealand oh, citizen, yeah, tells it you that Edwin gets fined 20 grand. Oh, yeah, I've just said it now. Yeah, I've admitted that I've organised it, so we can't do it. No, uh, look, I, of course we wouldn't do that. But, you know, Bruce Simpson's blog, I read it very uh, quite a lot, and I don't mean to advertise it deliberately, but, you know, it's just a, it is a fantastic blog, advark.co.nz. His opinion this week on this is that the whole... Uh, internet sphere, I suppose, the blogosphere, if you like, the whole internet should be exempt from that law. That's his opinion. What are your thoughts? Uh, well, they can't be. Uh, social media is so pervasive that, yeah, you just couldn't uh, put that as an exemption. It but that's defi- actually his point. That's why. It's actually so hard to believe. It's so, you know, can you really stop someone from saying, I voted whatever, I voted Greens. You should too. I mean, it gets well, ridiculous. Where do you draw the line? It's well, it's a different. Yeah, as you said, it is a difficult situation. But it is a it is a public. It's public knowledge of this electoral act. The fact that you do not advocate or promote a party or a candidate on election day itself, and if you breach it, then you are breaking the law. It's something that we've had this act for ages. Yeah, but should it apply to online? You, you think yes is basically what you're yes. saying? I think yes, it's the okay. same as me writing a billboard and walking with it over my head uh, down the street. It's exactly the same as if I tweeted it. Can um, you not even say anything? Can you not even speak on, on the day? Are you, if you're next to a police or any, can you not, you actually can't say anything at all. Well, that's a good question. I, well, I think that is the that is the the, the point of it is because that is part of it as well. If you were caught spouting off that you were voting for blah and people should vote for blah, then then yes, you would be fined. That's crazy, isn't it? Because I mean, look, tell you what, I could break the law, Brett. On election day, I'll come round to your flat and I'm going to say to you, I voted, and I, I don't vote Greens, but I'll say it. I'll say to you, Brett, I voted Greens. You should too. And I broke the law, but who's going to catch me? That's ridiculous. I'll talk you in. <laughs> oh, thanks a lot. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, uh, that's the point. With uh, some laws are just odd in that if you make an exemption, then you defeat the purpose of the law. And some okay, laws it's a, it's a difficult one. I yeah, some look. deserve to be you know made fun of in that sort of situation, but others have a specific purpose. Yeah, it's it's hard to it's hard to decide for a lot of these because they all sit in that w- murky grey area of this is the way things happen now and everything is global and how do you influence other globals? It's the same reason that France is attempting to make you know international companies toe their line when it comes to selling books. It's how do you do anything on the internet when other people outside of your country have their own laws which protect them? I don't know if you heard about the, the super injunction and Twitter uh, over here. There was no, a, what, there was a tell footballer. Us about it. I'm not too clear, but I, I didn't read too much on it. But there was a footballer who'd had an affair, and he'd put in a super injunction so no media could say anything oh, about it. Oh, yeah. Now, who was that? Yes, and, yes. And, and there was a Barbara Streisand effect, as they call it. Yeah. And I think it was Ryan Giggs. Yeah, that's it. Maybe. Yes, that's yeah. right. I, I did and, read and I something about that. 
someone in it was put in in a British court, and then a paper in Scotland published his name and said, "Well, we're we're not bothered by we're we're not under the law." <laughs> really, and, and they got away with it. Well, I, I don't know, but it was it was on Twitter as well. Yeah, and people were mentioning him on Twitter, and it, it, it's similar to kind of what what your story is. Yeah, yeah, because- yeah. Well, we've had the same thing with several different court cases, which have had name suppression orders on them, and it yep. is it's. With all of these laws, these laws are for New Zealand citizens. These are laws that have been passed by the government for the protection or whatever, however they came in, for New Zealand or for the different countries that belong in. And even though it seems counter to the law for people in a different country to be able to tweet the name of whatever and get away with it, it's the it's the, the jurisdictions of the law. And as long as the people within the jurisdiction of the law follow the law, then you should be fine. It's, it, yeah. <laughs> a lot of the stuff with the internet is all grey. It's one of the, the reasons we love the internet. <laughs> well, if, if we get anything from this story, and that is the advice that if you're in New Zealand... Don't go round saying who people should vote for on election day, even on Twitter or any blogs or anything like that on the internet, because, because you they will be will, monitoring it. Yes, they yeah, will be and monitoring you could be it and you may get $20,000. $20,000 fine. So just don't say it. It's Not the it. only reason The only reason that you would flout this sort of law, because it's, it's not censoring your freedom of speech, because you can be as vocal as you want to up to that point and as vocal after that point. As you want to be. It's just during that one day, it is a day for everybody to have, make up their own mind. There is a, it's a no peer pressure day. It's an anti-bullying day. Okay, really. let's call it that. <laughs> okay, that's, so that's, that's what that law that. is about. It's an anti-bullying, anti-influence, anti-coercion day. Okay, so that's what not to say. What we will say, though, is, Asim, thank you very much for joining us on the show. It's been a real pleasure having you back. <laughs> no problem, man. I really enjoyed it. I oh, enjoyed having you on the show, and it's it's really good to hear from you from from your uh, trip to the States. Congratulations once again. Great. Thank you. And we look forward to being able to purchase our own pair of drum jeans or trousers. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully in the future. I, I'm now um, in a partnership with an innovation company called New Edge, and they're going to help me patent, develop, and research it. So hopefully oh, very it will good. be in the market awesome. soon. Oh, con- great. Good. Congratulations. <laughs> Hope that works out for you. Thanks. And Brett, thank you once again for joining me on the panel. Always a pleasure. And that was episode 118. Thanks, everyone, for listening. See you again next week. Till then, bye-bye. Bye-bye. So anyway, you live in Hull, and so you made your way down to England. Uh, sorry, England. London. <laughs> Hull is England. I'm really sorry. That's a Freudian slip. <laughs> no, it's not. It's a genuine mistake.